This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Medical ethics decisions, especially for patients in their last days, can be quite challenging. And here to help us navigate some of these are Dr. Thomas Curran. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University, and Robert Olick, an attorney and associate professor of Bioethics and Humanities. He's also chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University. Both of my guests serve as ethics consultants for Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Now, you guys were here not too long ago, and we spent some time talking about both how medical ethics consultants work, but also the specifics of a case that came up. And so many things came up in that discussion that I thought we'd have you back to talk a little bit more, first about what your roles are as medical ethics consultants, and then maybe spend a little bit more time on a couple of other cases that you have recently dealt with. So Dr. Curran, let me start with you. As a medical ethics consultant, what exactly do you do? I provide advice to patients and their families uh, and when they find themselves in ethically charged situations surrounding uh, you know, their, their care at the, here at the hospital. And is it usually around end-of-life situations? Far and away, our most common reason to be consulted is a disagreement disagreement about how to proceed with end-of-life issues. Absolutely. And usually after someone has lost, their the, the patient themselves have lost some decisional capacity or not always? That is classically the case because you have, you know, the, it's, it's easy when the patient has capacity, there's no argument. Patients are allowed to make bad decisions, even what you consider to be bad decisions if they have capacity. It's when they lose capacity and you have to figure out what do you, what would this patient want in this situation where it gets muddy because families, shockingly, sometimes disagree. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> Mr. Olick, you're an attorney, and, and that's your background, but obviously you've come to this from a little different perspective given that background. What, how do you see your role as a medical ethics consultant in the hospital? I don't necessarily see my role any differently than Tom does. Mm-hmm. Um, as an ethics consultant, um, I have a different background and knowledge base, perhaps, and training than, than Dr. Curran does. Um, but we're really about the same mission, which is to help uh, parties in the case, the so patient, family, doctor, nurse, and others, um, identify the source of their disagreements, to educate them about the relevant principles and rules, both ethically and legally, uh, and to help facilitate a resolution of the case. Um, we don't substitute our judgment for theirs. Um, we give advice and recommendations. Um, and, and these are non-binding recommendations. They are non-binding recommendations. Uh, and one of the important points that comes up over and over again in these sorts of cases is the importance of honoring the patient's wishes. And when the patient has lost capacity, as you were describing, um, to find out <clears throat> what the patient's wishes were, look at the important sources of information, whether there's been a healthcare proxy designation, uh, whether the patient has talked to family, friends, religious leaders, and so forth. But there's also been a major shift in our attitudes in terms of the, the whole idea of being patient-centric versus uh, the, what was considered at one time more of a paternal relationship between the doctor and the patient, where the doctor would have basically play God, so to speak, and make decisions for patients. And today, obviously, the emphasis is different, right? So I trained in the mid-'80s, and I was trained as to be paternalistic. And that, the generation above me was definitely paternalistic. You know, 
in in the in 2016, that is not an, uh, that is not the model any longer. The model really is patient centric, with honoring the patient's autonomy to make decisions, uh, and the, the the physician serves more of a providing options, but the patient decides what they want. But there have to be certain principles that you use when you enter into one of these cases in terms of your approach. In other words, it sounds to me that this fact-finding that has to take place first, and let's, I think it will be helpful if we start with a case and talk about kind of how you approach it and some of these things I think will emerge. Dr. Curran, give us an example of, of a case you've recently seen. Sure. So the, the, uh, we were consulted for, uh, for a 63-year-old female who was admitted with acute respiratory failure uh, due to advanced lung cancer. I might add that's a very unusual way for lung cancer to present with acute um, respiratory failure. And this woman had known that she had had a mass in her lung for 10 months, but had not sought medical attention during that entire time. So her disease was so advanced by the time she showed up at the hospital that she needed to be intubated uh, for respiratory failure. Very, very unusual. And she also, the disease was so advanced that she was no longer a candidate for chemotherapy. And the real tricky part of this case was that her decisional capacity would come and go. She would have good days and bad days. So she'd go from being lucid to not. And when she was lucid, she stated her desire to transition to comfort care. She wanted to get out of the hospital. She wanted to have hospice and, and, and just you know be allowed to die in peace. Her husband, on the other hand, wanted to continue uh, aggressive treatment and he was the healthcare proxy. And so when she, her decisional capacity would wane, he would be the one that they would talk to about this treatment decisions. We were then consulted because the staff was concerned what appeared to be a disconnect between what the woman would say when she had capacity and what the husband would say when she didn't have capacity. Right, and it would be very difficult to make decisions as to how to move forward oh, under those circumstances. A nightmare. A nightmare. So what happened? What happened? I mean, basically, what was done? What What was your method in approaching this? What did you need to know? Well, so the, the first of all, we had to find a, a valid healthcare proxy document, which did in fact exist and did in fact name the husband. Um, the second thing was to try and get uh, people in the same room to talk about what what they wanted, uh, and and try and do that in a time when the patient, the woman, had capacity. And it was interesting because what was she when she when the husband was in the room with her, she would, she would defer to what he wanted. And when he was not in the room with her, she would say she didn't want to do this anymore. And so the, it was, the real question was, when, which, part, which story was the right one? What were her real wishes? What were her real wishes? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with bioethicists Dr. Thomas Kern and Robert Olick, and we're talking about the ethics of med certain medical cases. So uh, what, what would you think in that circumstance, Mr. Olick? Well, so starting with the principle that um, first and foremost, the obligation is to respect the patient's autonomy, um, you're then looking for the autonomy with the patient. So as a physician, uh, you have an obligation to try to uh, take advantage of opportunities to enhance the patient's autonomy. So a patient with waxing, waning autonomy um, and capacity, um, look for opportunities to facilitate moments of lucidity and assess them uh, when they occur, engage the patient in conversation. Um, but if the patient is um, flip-flopping, so to speak, being inconsistent, 
uh, in their expressions and their preferences and statements of their wishes, um, it can be very challenging to try to sort out where there is true autonomy, because one thing we would want to look for in a patient like this would be consistency. Mm. Uh, and then, as Dr. Curran mentioned, um, is the patient making an autonomous expression and choice when her husband is out of the room? Um, if she's making a different decision when in the room, and so there's almost, there's almost family mediation going on here. I mean, in terms of their relationship, even apart from, I mean, it sounds like she was deferring to him even when she was cogent, right? Which might have to do with their history and their in their marriage, and so that becomes very complicated. It does become complicated, but that's not to say that in the exercise of our autonomy, we don't sometimes defer to others, especially those we know extremely well and those we trust. So the mere fact that she would be embracing her husband's views doesn't mean she's not making an autonomous choice, and that makes the situation all the more complicated. It's also important to understand that his role as healthcare proxy um, only has force and effect if she lacks capacity. So as was described, he was maybe trying to make decisions at times when she seemed to lack capacity, but if she has capacity, and is making an autonomous choice, then it's her wishes that control, and he doesn't have authority to override that as the healthcare proxy. So what happened? So I, I just I want to add that when we, when we had the discussion, the fact that she had gone 10 months without seeking medical treatment to, to us suggested that she had, her wishes were kind of foreshadowed because most people don't make that decision. Most people get something, a lung mass checked out. And so we, we said, that's what we talked about in the, in, in the family meeting. Uh, the 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 other the other part of this case I think is important is that um, this it illustrates how important it is to have a healthcare proxy who will respect your wishes. In this case, there appeared to be she appeared to have done a poor job of selecting a healthcare proxy because he appeared to be acting in opposition to her wishes when she had lucidity. And in this case, um, she passed away while we were working. Through this, okay. which is the other, you know, we can say all we want, but the fact is, you don't, you don't get to pick when you're going to go sometimes. And this, and she just died because that's how sick she, how sick she was. The, the, the sad part for me, or the missed opportunity for me, was she didn't have the opportunity to die at her home, surrounded by her family, you know, in, in peace. She died in the hospital when it, it seemed like that's not what she wanted. Uh, but that's how, you know, all, you can only do what you can do. But I guess the takeaway from this, I think what we're trying to get at here is obviously there are all of these sticky situations. And, and it seems to me a lot of what you're doing in your role is also trying to kind of um, mediate family disagreements that may occur when someone is trying to make a surrogate decision for their loved one who may have lost um, decisional capacity of some kind. So what's, what do you think the takeaway here is? I'm, I'm hearing you allude to it but you may have said it already, but this whole idea of think before you pick a healthcare proxy. Right. So we shouldn't be too critical of the choice that was made here. I mean, after all, right. um, the person most of us would trust, first and foremost, Might would be, be our, our spouse, spouse. For sure. Right? And um, one wants to be able to anticipate through conversation uh, and understanding whether the person you... Uh, are choosing or thinking of choosing um, can bear the burdens of decision that mm -hmm. are being placed on them. Sure. And you may not always be correct about that. Mm -hmm. um, so 
uh, you know, we want to take that into account. But advance planning, as was done here, but also advance conversation as part of the planning process. Talking to the person you would trust, and, and not necessarily just one person, talking to the family, uh, talking to your doctor, if you have an ongoing relationship with your physician, um, to express your wishes, and to do that periodically over time. Uh, so in this case, uh, when the patient had a clear diagnosis, and she was ignoring treatment recommendations for 10 months, she knew what her condition was. So she wasn't anticipating, trying to anticipate a hypothetical situation. And so that would have been a good time to revisit the conversation uh, with her husband and with her doctor uh, to better anticipate what the future would hold and the decisions <coughs> to be made. It seems to me there's a big lesson here to be learned. There's a lot of talk about the importance of having quote-unquote advanced directives, meaning some things in writing that you've at least... Um, put down somewhere what your wishes might be in those in, just to deal with this kind of a situation but I think there's something more that I'm hearing and that I, I hear you're saying and that has to do with the conversation really needs to be made current in your mm -hmm. current situation because pieces of paper can change I know people can <coughs> write something down and then later in life maybe not having revisited it their their met, their attitude changes so what's the bottom line in terms of this it basically the conversation let's just sum it up real quick what's the bottom line uh, I think it is the conversation and it's um, having and the choice the, the foresight and um, to some extent the courage you could say Absolutely. to confront uh, future possibilities your of mortality. A dying process of your mortality and to be open about that with the people who care about you the most. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And obviously, these are tough issues, but very, very important for people to think about and take action with and obviously have the conversation. My guests have been Dr. Thomas Curran. He's a physician, assistant professor of bioethics and humanities, and Robert Olick, a lawyer and associate professor of bioethics and humanities, both from Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.